You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. I don't personally know anyone who likes exams. I don't like exams. I don't like any type of exams. I don't like driver's exams because you have to parallel park. I don't like dental exams because you have to hold your mouth open the whole time. I don't like eye exams because they put that liquid into your eyes that increases the size of your pupils. I don't like COVID exams because they take that swab up into your brain cavity. And I especially don't like the exams for men 50 and above. (laughs) I do not like exams, but exams, as we know, are a necessary evil. I mean, a, a vital part of life. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you're having an exam administered, the teacher doesn't talk a whole lot. She expects that whatever she taught you You learned. If it's a medical doctor, he may say, take a deep breath, or does that hurt? But ultimately, no one's talking during exams. Often, it's complete silence. Spiritually speaking, that can be the same as well. In the midst of the trials in your life, in the midst of immense suffering, sometimes it seems like God is silent. You want to hear from heaven, but you don't hear anything. You feel all alone in the midst of your suffering and trials. Now, the reality is sometimes God wants us to be able to walk through tests and exams with the revelation that he's given us. And the hope is that we've done our homework, that we've had conversations with God that we've asked him questions like, what is the purpose of suffering? Is my tragedy a waste or is there a design for it? See, if we ask those questions, if we seek God for answers, if we read his word, he can enable us to walk through the trials, the tests, and the tragedies of life. But the truth is, Suffering is just hard, isn't it? We're going to look at a book of the Bible called 1 Peter. And we're starting a sermon series called How to Live in a Spiritually Hostile World. And we're going to find that in the letter of 1 Peter, all five chapters, the noun and the verb suffer is used in every chapter. It's the key word of the book of 1 Peter. That's not very encouraging, is it? I mean, you didn't come to church today to suffer or to talk about suffering. But the truth is, there's actually encouragement for each and every one of us. Because we all know suffering is a part of this world. And yet, the passage that we're going to look at today, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, answers the question, why can we praise God in the midst of suffering? Peter believes it's possible for us to praise God 
even in the midst of the worst suffering and the worst trials of this life. But Peter says our outlook determines our outcome. In other words, this section is about perspective. Do we have a heavenly perspective? Do we have a vertical perspective? Are we focused on the Lord? Are we focused on the gospel? Are we anticipating our future home in heaven? If that is true, we can not only endure suffering, we can thrive in the midst of it, understanding the purpose to our suffering. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, the first dozen verses. What we're going to find in these verses is there's not one command. No exhortations, no admonitions, nothing but declarations and affirmations. So we're going to look at four comforting affirmations to those that are living in a spiritually hostile world. The first one is found in verses 1 and 2. We have a new identity. Peter's going to say that who we are and where we're going, our identity and our destination, will help us to be able to walk through suffering in this life. So look with me at verse 1 and notice the very first word, Peter. Don't you love this? When we go to the mailbox and look for mail, the first thing we do, whether we realize it or not, is we look for who wrote the mail. If it's bills, we want to disregard it. If it's advertising, get that out of here, take it to the paper shredder. But if it's someone that we care about, we're going to take that letter or that package and we're going to devour it. On social media, you do the same thing. You look to see who's written the post to determine whether you want to read it and respond to it. In the ancient Near East, that's how they always did things. They started with the person's name who was writing the letter. In this case, Peter. I so wish we did that today. We could save so much time. Now, when you think about Peter, be honest. What do you immediately think of? Yeah, you think of an apostle, or you may think of someone who talked a lot and who walked on water and then sunk when he lacked faith. Or you may think of the person who denied Jesus three times. The truth is, that happened 30 years before Peter is writing this letter. So a lot's changed. And Peter wants us to understand who he now is. But I want you to lock this in your mind. When Peter had denied Jesus three times, he went back to fishing. And Jesus pursued Peter. And he approached him after he was done fishing and he said, do you love me? He asked that three times. And every time he asked the question, Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you, Lord. Well, in response to each of the questions, Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. In other words, give my people biblical teaching. Now, if we look back prior to Peter's denials, Peter said, 
I'm your main man, Jesus. I will never deny you. I will never fall away from you. Even if all the other disciples fall away, I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. Jesus said, Pete, you're going to deny me three times. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. When you turn back, strengthen the brothers. Why was 1 Peter written? To feed the sheep and to strengthen sisters and brothers. That's why 1 Peter was written. Now let's take a look at the name Peter once again, shall we? Peter was formerly Simon. But Jesus changed his name to Cephas, or Peter, the Aramaic and the Greek. Both terms mean rock or stone. Now, if you've studied the Gospels, you're probably thinking to yourself, Peter wasn't a rock. He was like a pebble at best. But Jesus is seeing Peter's potential because Jesus knows what God and the Holy Spirit can do in a person's life. And so he speaks words of hope and words of expectation over Peter that he would be the rock that God had called him to be. Isn't that important in our ministry? We're a next-gen focused church. And when we look at the next generation or those that are immediately behind us, we need to see potential in them. We need to see what the Holy Spirit can do with people. And we need to believe in God's power. We need to trust that he can help us build disciples who bring Jesus to our world. So I challenge you today, who has God called you to invest in? Jesus had a Peter. He believed in him. He trained him. He equipped him. And Peter became the one in Matthew 16, whom Jesus said, I will build my church upon you, Peter, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Believe in your disciples. Believe what God can do in and through them. Now, Peter explains who he is in verse 1. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle simply means a sent one. That's how it's defined. There are no apostles alive today, but there are plenty of sent ones. We are sent ones. We are sent to particular schools, neighborhoods, workplaces, and churches. And God wants to use us powerfully. But what's interesting about this phrase of, of Jesus Christ is, in the New Testament, you don't see teachers of Jesus Christ, prophets of Jesus Christ, evangelists of Jesus Christ. Never occurs. Only apostles of Jesus Christ. Now the question is why? Because an apostle is one who has the authority of Jesus Christ. Now the reason that's important is apostles are writing the New Testament. And when we read the New Testament, there are times we say, well, I don't know about the doctrine of hell. I'm not so sure about Jesus Christ being the only way to God. I don't even know how I feel about salvation being by faith alone. When every other religion says it's by works, I don't care what the tension is. 
or what you're challenged with, even when you doubt, even when you don't like what Scripture says, the good news is Peter and the writers of the New Testament are writing with the very authority of Jesus Christ. So our problem is not so much with the writers of Scripture. We need to perhaps bring our concerns to God because they are writing under his very authority and influence. And that means we can trust Scripture. Whether you're a college freshman or whether you're an eighth grader and you're in an environment that's hostile to Christianity and hostile to the Word of God, you can have confidence that the Bible is the Word of God. Peter now begins to address his recipients in verse 1. He says, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, we immediately think, aliens? Like extraterrestrials? I mean, what, what's going on here? No. Other English versions will say exiles, sojourners. They are people who have been scattered due to persecution. These five Roman provinces consist of both Jewish people and Gentiles, and they have been scattered like salt out of a salt shaker, being dispersed all over the place because they are persecuted. Now, it's primarily verbal. There's ostracism from culture and society. But Peter is writing at about 62, 63 AD, and he's writing a preview of persecution. Because in just a year or two, Emperor Nero, one of the most diabolical men who's ever lived, he was using Christians as lampshades to light up his garden. He would skin them alive. He would kill them. He would torture them. He burned the city of Rome blamed Christians for it, made Christianity almost intolerable. And yet here, Peter is telling these believers, your home is in heaven, you're a citizen, you're just passing through on your way to your eternal home. Wherever God has placed you, it's for a purpose. He wants to use you at your school. He wants to use you in your neighborhood. He wants to use you in your workplace, and you're there by divine design. Acts 17 says God has set up the habitation and the areas, the regions of the world that he will place us in. He's placed us here in the east side of Seattle for a purpose, to be used by him powerfully. Now, as we look at these five Roman provinces, What's distressing is these were Christianized regions of the world. Now, this is modern-day Turkey that is 98% Muslim and a very persecuted country. So one of the things that we can do as we work through 1 Peter is pray for the country of Turkey. Pray that the believers there will be strong in their faith as exiles who are passing through and we can pray that God will use the persecution to build up his church. Peter now is going to say a few more things about the audience. In verse 1, you'll see these believers are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, whenever we read about God's choice 
or election and predestination, Christians have their hackles go up and they develop spiritual indigestion or heartburn. And we all have our thoughts on what the Bible means by the elect and by God's chosen ones. I've dealt with this at great length in Romans chapter 9. If you want a detailed explanation, you can go online and listen to Romans 9. For now, we need to understand something more important. And that is, why does Peter bring it up in the very first verse? What he does in the original language is, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The fifth word in the Greek text is chosen. So whatever this means, it's very, very important to Peter. Here's why it's important. These believers were marginalized. These believers were ostracized. These believers were persecuted. They were forgotten. They were rejected. And Peter wants them to know God has chosen them. See, for many of us, God's choice is a puzzle for the mind. But in Scripture, it's not a puzzle for the mind. It's a pillow for the soul. It's designed to comfort persecuted believers so that they know while they've been rejected by society, they've been accepted and chosen by God. They've been chosen for salvation because if God did not take the initiative with us, we wouldn't take it. We don't pursue God. God pursues us. He's a mission-minded God who seeks out individuals to bring them into his family. Now, the basis for this is foreknowledge, verse 2 says. Foreknowledge can be simply looking down through the corridor of time, knowing in advance what's going to happen. But in this context, it refers to God's purpose. That God has a purpose to choose suffering believers for salvation and for service in these provinces in Rome. The same is true for each one of us. There may be a time in our future where we're ostracized from society, where we're not able to do what we thought we would do the rest of our lives, work in our place of work, pursue our choice of career, raise our children in a particular school. That may not be how our Christian fairy tale unfolds. God wants us to know that he's sovereign and that he's in control of everything. And because he has chosen us, I like to say, even if we unchoose him, it's his prerogative whether we remain children of God. The truth is, because God chooses us, we are secure in his love. There is grace for those who spiritually fail. Because salvation is not a work of humankind, it's a work of God. So we start in verse 1 with the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. In verse 2, we're going to move to another member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Then we conclude with God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this use of the Godhead, what we call the Trinity, there's absolute security in our suffering and in our eternal relationship with God. So notice in verse 2, the emphasis upon the Holy Spirit, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
We tend to read sanctification, a theological concept, which can mean progressively becoming more like Jesus. We tend to read that of discipleship and spiritual maturity. But in this context, it's used of your initial faith in Christ. You are made into a saint, positionally speaking. We then move to the work of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 2. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. To obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood mean the same thing. To obey or obedience in 1 Peter refers to conversion. That's the term that Peter uses in his letter. And this idea of being sprinkled with his blood, this is from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24, where Israel is in a covenant with God and they promise obedience and Moses sprinkles them with the blood of a sacrifice. And so it's a picture of trusting in Jesus Christ, being sprinkled with his blood in the New Testament sense, and then walking with the Lord. So the Godhead is involved in all aspects of our identity. Peter then concludes in verse 2 by saying, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace is the greeting of Greeks, of Gentiles. Peace is the greeting of Jewish people. So grace, we often define it as God's riches at Christ's expense. Peace is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual harmony for Jewish people. So we take those two greetings, those two blessings, and we bring them together, not merely as greetings, but as theologically significant terms. We have grace and peace. That's a part of our identity in Jesus Christ. If you are to suffer well for the cause of Christ, a lot of it will have to do with how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a saint? Do you see yourself as someone who's chosen, who's beloved? Do you see yourself as salt and light? Do you see yourself as a fragrant aroma? How do you see yourself? In the way the New Testament says? Or in the way you and I can tend to think when we're discouraged by Satan, by our own flesh, and by people around us? God wants us to adopt our new identity and it's a comforting affirmation of who we are in Christ and where we're headed now the second comforting affirmation is this in verses 3 through 5 Peter says we have a certain salvation in other words what God has promised is and will come to pass you can bank on it in verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can stop right there. It starts with blessed, or as some like to say, blessed. It just means praise. But here's what we need to note. Peter begins with worship, not worry. Remember, he's living in a spiritually hostile world that's opposed to Christianity. But he immediately launches into worry. He focuses in on praise, not the problems. See, often we can be so overwhelmed with our problems, our problems can keep us from seeing God. We said in Daniel, God is large and in charge, but for some of us, 
He's tiny and not very involved because we've allowed stress, anxiety, and the challenges of something like COVID to keep us from praising him. How does Peter begin? Peter says, Lord, I praise you for your great mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter focuses in on God's mercy. What is mercy? It is not receiving what you deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve wrath or punishment for our sin. God gives us mercy. And it's great mercy. And it's to a living hope. And that living hope is grounded and founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what is hope? We often think of the English term hope. I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. I hope the Seahawks win the Super Bowl. I hope I have enough money for retirement. All three of those things probably won't happen. Biblically speaking, hope is a certain confident expectation. It's based upon God's word. God said it. He's going to fulfill it. It's as good as done. So it's guaranteed. But here, Peter says, but it's a living hope. In other words, it's not dependent upon dying people and dying things. See, our hope is in financial security. Our hope is in popularity. Our hope is in our future plans. Our hope is in our athletic ability or our academic ability. But all of those, they're either dying or they will die. The only living hope that we have is Jesus Christ's resurrection. And because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, you are able to have your sin forgiven, forgotten forever. Your past, your present, your future. No matter what you've done, either before you became a Christian or after you became a Christian, nothing can separate you from the love of God because of his great mercy and because of the living hope of Jesus' resurrection. One of my favorite verses of Scripture is Mark chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus has risen from the dead. An angel appears to the women who made it to the tomb. Not the men, mind you. The women. They were the first to the tomb. And the angel says on behalf of Jesus, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why the inclusion of Peter? Because Peter had denied Jesus Christ three times. And he had returned to fishing. And he thought, God can't possibly use me. I'm a sinful man. There's no hope for me anymore. Jesus, just go on with your program. Build your church and build it without me. Yet the good news of the living hope is that your sin is forgiven if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you don't have to have ministry taken away 
for sins that you've committed prior to trusting in Christ. There are consequences for sin, but the mercy that God gives is vast. And He wants to use each and every one of us in unique and distinct ways because of the resurrection of Christ. Now, this word hope, if you're looking for a Bible study, I checked this three times this past week. The Greek word for hope is used 53 times in the New Testament. How many weeks are there in a year? 52. You've got 52 passages you can study about hope and then a bonus passage. Because we are living in a hopeless season apart from the gospel, apart from the resurrection of Jesus. It seems like hope has run away from us. But that's where we go back to Scripture, where our hope is found. Study hope. Rely upon the living hope. Our outlook determines our outcome, particularly as it relates to trials. Now, in verse 4, Peter continues. He says, we're called to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verses 4 and 5 are so meaty. Some want to pick one of these verses and preach an entire sermon on it. But that removes the context of Peter's argument. Here Peter says, you have an inheritance. And then he lists three adjectives that describe the inheritance. Notice, it's imperishable. It won't rot. It won't die. It's not like expired cottage cheese or some of the fruit in your fruit bowl. Notice, not only is it imperishable, it's undefiled. Sin has nothing to do with the inheritance that we're headed to. And then lastly, this is beautiful, and the inheritance will not fade away. This was used of flowers that lost their color, that faded. They lost their beauty over the course of time. Sort of like how I feel once I hit 20. It's been downhill ever since. We have an inheritance that is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. It is reserved for you in heaven. Not only your eternal salvation, but the reward that accompanies it. Now, I love that term reserved because I always think of airline reservations. I am the world's worst traveler. If something could go wrong, it goes wrong when I travel. My wife doesn't even want to travel with me, ever. So what I do is I print out my boarding pass while I'm at home. I then make sure my boarding pass is on my smartphone. I then walk up to the desk and I make sure that they have my boarding pass on their computer. And I'm still insecure because I've had so many challenges. God's reservation system, you got three reservations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's guaranteed. Scripture says we are in heaven right now. Ephesians 1, we're seated in the 
heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally speaking, we're there. We're just walking through this life as sojourners, as exiles, waiting to go home to our heavenly reward. And nothing or no one can take it from us. In verse 5, Peter says we're protected by the power of God. And we're protected for this last time salvation, which is what's called glorification. That just means when you get a new body, which I'm looking forward to. I'll be Mr. Universe. You get a new body that's free of any disability. It's free of sin. Motives, attitudes, thoughts, words, works. It is a perfect body, and you enter into your reward. Peter says, in this life, it is being guarded. And he uses a military term, for those of you with a military background, to build a garrison, to set up a guard. That's how the ESV translates it, guarded. I love that. There is no one that can bring a trial or a tragedy or any suffering into your life that God has not given permission for that to happen. You can trust in the Lord. King Jesus is the ultimate military might. And if he's guarding you in this life, you can relax. Jesus is more than enough. So what we've seen is we have a new identity. We also have a certain salvation. And that should comfort any believer that's going through difficulties. But most of us are asking a simple question. I get the pie-in-the-sky type of talk. I've heard that for many, many years about heaven and the afterlife and who I am in Christ. But what, what I want to know is, how is the Lord with me in my suffering? Is He in the middle of it right now? I need God's presence at this very moment. Peter is ahead of you. Verses 3 through 5 deal with our future. Verses 6 through 9 deal in our present. So the third affirmation is we have an irresistible joy. Peter is going to bookend this passage by talking about great rejoicing. Verse 6 and verse 8. And he's going to say that no matter what we encounter or experience, we can have joy. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Going back to verses 3 through 5, our salvation, our certain salvation. We rejoice in that. Even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So while Peter is referring primarily to verbal persecution and ostracism and rejection from society, in the next year or so, Emperor Nero is bringing physical persecution. He uses a term, though, various, various trials. And that goes far beyond persecution. If you're going through a divorce today, First Peter is for you. If you have a prodigal child, First Peter is for you. If you're dealing with mental health or chronic pain, 1 Peter is for you. Every trial that we are encountering right now, 
Peter has a word for each and every one of us. And that's all by God's design in how Peter has crafted this letter. I love what he says in verse 6. In verse 6, he makes it clear that the suffering is only for a little while, if necessary. And that term if means indeed it is necessary. But what he does is he says no matter what your trial is, it's for a little while. And he's contrasting that with what he has said about the inheritance in verse 4. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It'll never fade away. What hope we have that what God will reward us for one day is the suffering that we endure that in light of eternity will be like a blip on the radar. That's not to minimize any of our suffering. I have suffered immensely, and so have you. But in light of eternity, the hope is a new body and life with Christ, the one who has suffered the most. In verse 7, Peter's going to give us one of the purposes of suffering. He says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, unlike our inheritance, mind you, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, one of the purposes of your trials is your faith will be grown. You'll go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Because no one grows when things are easy. Every athlete knows that. Every musician knows that. Every academician knows that. When there is no need to be disciplined, when there is no tension, no suffering, we become couch potatoes, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So God uses suffering to grow our faith. And he says that if we go through suffering well, look at verse 7, there will be praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. These exclamations are typically only given to God in Scripture. And yet here he says, if you suffer well, if you join in suffering like my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God says through Peter that we will share in the exclamations, in the affirmations of Jesus and God himself. This is powerful. Verse 8 continues with another purpose. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. A second purpose in our trials is we will love the Lord far more than we currently do. Just think about it. If you have a roommate, if you have a best friend, or if you have a spouse, when the relationship is wonderful, there's no need for unconditional love. There's no need for forgiveness. But when you get into that first fight and you feel like this relationship is over, and then through the suffering and the trial, you practice unconditional love and forgiveness, what happens? The relationship grows. Relationships that aren't tested by suffering will not be relationships that go the distance. God is preparing you for eternity by allowing you to learn how to love Jesus Christ more. And the way we do that 
is by suffering and by going through what Jesus himself endured. Verse 9 is going to wrap this up. Peter says, the ultimate goal, the ultimate objective to suffering is obtaining or receiving as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, obtaining or receiving is a term that is used of reward. We see it in chapter 1, verse 9, but it is seen again, the very same verb in chapter 5, verse 4, where elders who serve well, elders who shepherd well, they obtain or receive the crown of glory. That's a picture of eternal reward. So 1 Peter is about the salvation of your soul. Now, when we think of soul, we think of saving my soul from hell. That's not what Peter is talking about here. He's talking about what Jesus talks about in the gospel, where we save our lives so that we might experience true life in the life to come. Salvation of your souls is reward. Reward that comes out of suffering for Christ and living your life for the honor of the Lord. What's interesting about this section is how powerfully Peter is emphasizing rejoicing. I did some research this past week, and I spent way too much time on this. But the question that I was curious about is, how many times a day does the average American complain? The research that I did guesstimated 15 to 30 times. But I wasn't satisfied with that, so I found some research that went up to 70. 70 times a day, the average American complains. But here's what's so funny. All the research was pre-COVID. <laughs> Can you imagine how many times the average American complains right now? Yikes! I mean, it's, it's got to be in the hundreds. Hundreds of times a day, we're probably complaining. And you know what we do when we complain? We say, God, you're not sovereign. You didn't intend this for me. I needed a life of ease. I needed a life of prosperity. I needed a life of convenience. We are actually complaining against God, whether we know it or not. We think we're con complaining against governing authorities and against church leadership and against those in our lives who see things differently. That's not what we're doing. We're complaining against the sovereign God. And Peter is clear. Our outlook determines our outcome. Will we experience the salvation of our souls? Will we have that eternal reward that comes through suffering? How do we do that? We greatly rejoice. We rejoice in whatever comes our way as difficult as it is. Peter concludes in verses 10 through 12 with a fourth affirmation we have an anticipated salvation. Peter looks at history. He looks at the angelic realm. He looks at Old Testament prophets. And he says, we know some things that they didn't even fully understand. Peter writes, as to this salvation, the salvation of verse 9, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Here's what's going on here. Peter is not talking about salvation by faith alone. The Old Testament prophets understood that. The angels didn't need to understand that because there is no salvation for angels. They don't understand fully how suffering leads to glory. They are seeking understanding. They could see the suffering of the Messiah and the glory that he would experience, but they couldn't understand everything that would take place in the midst. We live in the most exciting time in human history. Do you realize that? We understand things that the Old Testament prophets did not. We are receiving revelation that angels, the term is literally stoop, they stoop over trying to understand some of the things that the Spirit is revealing to the church. We have all 66 books of Scripture. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to live for Him in a spiritually hostile world. And Peter says, to the degree that you do that, you will experience great reward. Your suffering will never be wasted, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, financial, or spiritual. Are any of you stargazers? Do you like to look into the sky, maybe even use a telescope? If you want to see the Big Dipper, the Orion, the North Star, it better be clear and it better be dark one night. But when you're able to view God's creation, His autograph, and see how majestic He is, it leads you to be in awe of Him. We're trying to understand what the Old Testament prophets could not fully understand, what angels long to understand. We're asking the question, how can we suffer well and rejoice in the midst of it? How can we relate a certain salvation with God's choice, His foreknowledge, and conversion itself? How do we figure out this? In order to have the clarity, in order to see what we want to see, it's got to be dark. For some of us, it may have to be the dark night of the soul where we experience not just trials and tests, but some tragedies. And God will reveal himself to us in ways that he never has. I have learned more in the last six years than I have in the previous 44 because my suffering has been intense. I don't want to suffer the way I have had to suffer, but I wouldn't change what God has chosen to do because of my outlook. My outlook is bringing about the outcome that I desire. Will you please pray with me? Father, may our outlook, our perspective, bring about the outcome that we desire. Father, we want to walk through this life of tragedy and suffering well. We don't want it to be wasted. We want to honor and glorify you. Help us to do so. 
And Lord, we pray for those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ. Lord, what we bring to the table is our sin. We give you our sin in exchange for your perfection. Thank you that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and is seated at the Father's right hand, calling us to believe in him. May we do so today. And may we ask him for the grace to live a life worthy of our calling, even through suffering. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.